This is one of these weeks that divide our community. It's a week that many parents have been longing for and many kids have been dreading. Back to school week. When I was a kid, I'm sure I, I dreaded this week just as much as anybody else. I really enjoyed my school holidays. Uh, you didn't realise how privileged you were uh, to have them, did you? Until they all stop. But on the whole, I, I enjoyed school. I, I loved maths and science and history and PE. Uh, I could just about put up with things like art and music. But what I felt, found absolutely torturous, and I really mean torturous, was English. For me, English was terrible. I know, Tommy. I'm trying my best. Especially English composition. For me, there was nothing more painful than being handed a blank piece of paper and being told to, to write something like an essay or, or even worse, a poem. Oh, it was so painful. I just hated it and I was absolutely terrible at it. And so I'm in awe of you guys, the, the, those of you who have, who can write amazing poems or songs. I think what you're able to do is incredible and I encourage you to use your gift fully so you can serve God with it. But we can't just leave poetry to the experts among us. Because the Bible is jam-packed full of poetry. In things like songs, in prayers, in prophecies. In fact, someone has claimed, I haven't, I haven't checked this out, so don't quote me on this, but I've read that someone claimed that up to a third of the Bible is poetry. Have a look today and you can read down through it and check it out for, for me. So, if that's true... And if we believe that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, then we need to engage in poetry. We need to understand and seek to let the poetic parts of scripture speak into our lives as well. And so that's what we're going to do over the next while. We're going to spend some time in the book of Psalms. Because even if poetry doesn't come naturally to us, this book is an amazing resource for us in our Christian lives. The Psalms gives us words that we can use to express our struggles and our confusion and our pain in the difficult times. They give us the permission to be real about how we feel. And the worries and our fears. But the Psalms also point powerfully to the, the God who is there with us. In those struggles and in those difficulties. And they inspire us to look beyond the problems. And to trust in God. The one who is our king. The one that we can put our trust in. The one we can hope in. And to respond to him in praise and thanksgiving. And they do all of this in such a structured and creative way that just cause us to slow down and to think and to ponder. So that the reality of who God is and what he is doing in our lives sinks down deep into our souls. So the Psalms are an amazing resource for us. 
So we're going to take a few weeks just to get into them a little bit. And this morning we're going to start at probably the best place to start at the beginning. So we're going to read Psalm 1. We're not going to go through all 150 of the Psalms over the next few weeks, you'll be glad to know. Uh, But we are going to start at Psalm 1 this morning. So let's read it together. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. I think the Psalms are a perfect introduction to the whole book of Psalms. As like so much of the Bible, it presents to us two different ways to live. Either we are walking in the way of the righteous, or we are walking in the way of the wicked. It's a similar kind of choice that that Jesus presented to us in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7. There he said we can go through the narrow gate, or the wide gate. We can be walking on the, the narrow road, or the broad road. We can be a good tree bearing good fruit or a bad tree bearing bad fruit. We can build our lives on the sand or we can build our lives on the rock. And in Jesus' teaching, what determined this was how we responded to him. To trust in Jesus as our Saviour and Lord is to go through that narrow gate. It's to walk on that narrow road. It is to be a good tree. And it's to build our lives on the rock. And to reject Jesus is to go through the wide gate. To be on the broad road. To be a bad tree. And to build our lives on sand. And so this psalm presents to us the same choice between the way of Jesus or the way of this world. It's a, it's a simple choice. And it asks us to consider which life do we want? Which life are we living? Do we want to live a righteous, a righteous life that Jesus calls us to? Or the life of those who reject him? And the first section of this psalm describes the way of the righteous. The righteous are those who are separate from sin. And the, the, the psalmist uh, pictures this in three different ways. First of all, verse 1. The righteous person does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. The counsel of the wicked. That's the, the advice, or the guidance, or the ideas, or the world view of those who live without God. And I think if we thought about it, we would see this kind of counsel Everywhere we look. 
in personal conversations or in the books or magazines we might read or the films or the soaps or the chat shows that we might watch or in the websites that we might surf. It's all around us. So I think it's probably impossible for us to completely isolate ourselves from it. For living in this world, we are going to hear the counsel of the wicked. But the crucial thing is the righteous don't walk according to it. They don't listen to it. They don't agree with it. Secondly, the righteous person does not stand in the way of sinners. The sinners are those who rebel against God, against his standards. Those whose lifestyle and whose behaviour doesn't follow God's way. But the righteous, they don't stand with them in this. Of course, they don't isolate themselves from the people of this world, but they don't follow the example of the people of this world. Then thirdly, the righteous person does not sit in the seat of mockers. The mockers are those who sit in judgment on God. People who ridicule his truth and everyone who follows it. But the righteous can't sit there. Because they just don't belong with those who make fun of God or his people. And so I think the kind of the main message of each of these three pictures is basically the same. The righteous are those who separate themselves from the sinful attitudes of this world. And this is the cause, the call of the gospel. Paul, he says in Romans chapter 12, in response to the gospel, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. We're called to be different, to stand out as different. But probably you notice also there's a progression in how the psalmist writes this. And I think it's a picture of the the downward spiral, the slippery slope of those who fail to separate themselves from the world. Because if we start to listen to the counsel of the ungodly, then very soon we'll start to stand with them, to live like them. And finally, we'll end up settled in the place of ridiculing and mocking the God who loved us and gave himself for us. And unfortunately, some of us have seen people do that, haven't we? Going down that slippery slope. But the righteous are not only separate from sin. They're also saturated by God's word. Look at verse 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord. If we delight in something, we're, we're going to love it, we're going to value it, we're going to treasure it above everything else. So what do righteous people treasure? What do they desire? What do they find pleasure in? Well, it's the law of the Lord. The word here, you've probably heard it before, is the word Torah. And it's a crucial focus of the Psalms. Uh, And it means teaching or instruction. And it can refer to just the first five books of the Old Testament. The ones written by Moses, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. That can be referred to as the Torah. 
But that word Torah, because it's the teaching, the instruction, can be used to, to refer to the rest of the Bible as well. So this is what the righteous people value the most. They value God's word. This is what Psalm 119 says. In, in so many of his verses, the, 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 this is the psalm that, that Mags read out earlier today. So, verse 72 of that psalm. The law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. And then Psalm 103. How sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. Do we treasure God's word like that? Is it more valuable to us than all the money in the world? Is it sweeter to us than all the things that we love to eat? But crucially, the righteous don't just delight in God's word as an object to be admired from a distance. Do you know how you can stand and look at something, maybe a beautiful building, and just say, wow, that's amazing. But it's just something to be admired. It doesn't really impact our lives. But the righteous don't do this because they long to read it and let it seep deeply and speak deeply into their hearts. So verse 2 again, and on his law, he meditates day and night. Now, unfortunately, when we talk about meditation, many of us think about the the kind of Eastern meditation that's all the rage today. The the emptying of your mind with all of the the meditation techniques that you, you, you hear in all sorts of different kind of forms around us today. But that's not what, what the psalmist is talking about here. It's not talking about emptying our mind. It's talking about filling our mind. Filling our mind and heart with the truth of God's word. In fact, this word meditation, it literally means to mutter or to murmur. And I think the picture is that the righteous people, they keep on speaking God's word to themselves. They talk to themselves. But what they talk to themselves about is God's word. They read God's word, they study God's word, they think about God's word, and they talk about God's word to themselves, but also to others, of course. And they do this throughout the day and night. It's what is always on their minds. So that everything they do, everything they say, everywhere they go is influenced by God's word. This is actually what God told Joshua to do. Remember when Joshua stepped up into the leadership position of the nation of Israel after Moses died? God told Joshua, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. And Jesus told his followers to do something very similar. He said, if you hold to my teaching." you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And I don't know about you, but I don't think that's easy to do today. To really love God's word means that we need to devote time to reading it, to listening to it, to thinking through it. And these days, 
that unhurried time, undistracted time, is really difficult to find, isn't it? So if we're going to be among the righteous in, in, in meditating on God's word, we are going to have to make some really, really difficult decisions. Maybe to get up a little bit earlier out of bed. Maybe to switch off the TV. Or to log off of Facebook. Or to put your phone in another room. Just to spend some time alone with God and his word. But the righteous do this. Not because they're trying to be kind of, uh, they're trying to be sacrificial and a martyr and do something really tough. They do this because they believe that this is the blessed life. This is a successful life. Look at verse 1, right how it starts. Blessed is the man. Like Jesus said in the Beatitudes, the righteous are blessed, which really could be translated happy. But not in the way the world thinks. Not in a kind of superficial way because of the immediate circumstance, because life is great and everything's going well. Not that kind of happiness. But a deeper happiness. Because they're living a life that will ultimately be seen as one that is blessed. And the psalmist beautifully describes what that blessed life looks like. He says they are like a tree planted by streams of living, of water. It's a picture of strength, of stability, and of bountiful provision in life. These people will be able to keep standing even in the droughts and in the storms of life. And so they will be productive. This tree yields its fruit in season. In season. Not immediately. Fruit doesn't just appear like that. But at the right time, according to God's timetable, the righteous produce fruit that will last and that will be for God's glory. This was Jesus' promise. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. So they'll be planted and productive. And they'll also be permanent. Whose leaf does not wither. They will not be among the people who will just rise up. And just wither again. And shrivel up. up. Instead they will have a life within them. That will not die. They'll have eternal life. Jesus said, I am the the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. True, everlasting, eternal life. And so, the psalmist says, verse 3, whatever he does, prospers. Now that's not about the material prosperity or wealth that some people talk about these days. God's goal is much higher than this. Instead, this is about a heavenly treasure. A treasure that's going to last forever. 
It means that what the righteous do, that nothing that the righteous do will ever be in vain, will ever be empty, ever be a waste. So Paul writes in one of my favourite verses in the whole Bible, it says this, Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Whatever he does prospers, because whatever we do for the Lord is never empty, it's never a waste of time, it's never in vain. What an amazing promise. But look at the contrast that the psalmist sets up here between the righteous and the wicked. Instead of a planted, productive, permanent and prosperous tree, the wicked are like chaff that the wind blows away. Now, I don't think many of us have done this in our life. Have we? Anybody doing winnowing and threshing? No? But after harvesting, the farmer crushes the grain on the threshing floor and he separates the grain from the husk. But it's all mixed in together. So how are we going to separate it? Well, they had a really ingenious idea. High-tech idea. They threw up in the air on a hill where there was lots of wind and the wind would just catch the, the, the light husks and it would blow away. And the grain would fall down to the ground and be kept. Ingenious, isn't it? But the psalmist says that's what the wicked are like. From a human perspective, they might look strong and successful. We'll see that in some of the psalms we're looking at, how the wicked do sometimes look the part. But sooner or later, they're just going to be blown away. And they're just going to be discarded. That's because the wicked will not stand in the judgment. One day they will be brought before God and they will not be able to stand in his presence. They will be found guilty and they will be condemned. So Revelation 20 and 15 says this terrifying verse. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he'll be thrown into the lake of fire. A terrifying reality. But even before that final day of judgment, the wicked lose out because they're excluded from the community of God's people. And they will, the sinners will not stand in the assembly of the righteous. So this is a picture of emptiness, of loss. Those who do not separate themselves from sin will find themselves separate from the privilege and the blessing of God's people and ultimately separate from God himself. So the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked lead to very different destinations. But I think the crucial thing is that we need to be clear about why there's this difference. What is it that makes somebody righteous and somebody wicked? Because this is not ultimately because of what the righteous do, but it's because of what the Lord does. This is how the psalmist finishes his psalm, verse 6. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The different destinies of the righteous and the wicked are the result of the different relationships they have with God. 
The wicked, they will perish like chaff because they're enemies of God and they're cut off from his source of life. But the righteous will be planted and productive and permanent and prosperous like a tree because of their right relationship with God. The God who watches over them. So the fundamental difference between the righteous and the wicked is whether they or not they are in a relationship with God. And this is crucial, I think, to properly applying this psalm today. The message for us this morning is not that if we do all of the right things, then we will be like the righteous and we will stand like a tree. Because really, if that was the case, then we'd all have no hope. Because on our own, we cannot avoid the influence of this wicked world. We can't focus our minds constantly on God's word. We cannot live the perfect life of the righteous on our own strength. And so on our own, we would deserve the condemnation of the wicked. But there was one person who did live that perfect life. That's of course Jesus. He was completely separate from sin. Even although he was a friend of sinners and he came to save sinners, he could say, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? He did not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He did not stand in the, in the way of the sinners. He did not sit in the seat of mockers. But he was saturated with the truth of God's word. Day and night, Jesus lived it, breathed it. Everything he did was not only consistent with it, it actually was the fulfillment of it. He said about the law, I have not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. And so when he died, Jesus died under the burden of our sin, our wickedness. So we could receive his righteousness. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So if we trust in Jesus as our Saviour and Lord. If we put our faith in him. Then he will forgive us all of our sins. And he will bring us into the blessings of the righteous. And through his transforming power, he will separate us from the sin of this world as he declares us to be his holy people. And through his indwelling spirit, he will saturate us with his word. So it's not just words on a page, but it's written on our hearts. Changing us from the inside out. And so he will make us like a tree planted by streams of living water. And enable us to be fruitful in our lives for God. And to give us eternal life that will never perish. And will ensure that our labour in the Lord is not in vain. So this is the simple choice that Psalm 1 presents to us. We can either choose to ignore Christ. And continue on the way of the wicked that leads to judgment and loss. 
Or we can choose to trust in Christ and walk the way of the righteous that leads to fulfillment and to joy. So the question I want you to ask yourself this morning is, which path are you on?